Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, John Novello. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, please subscribe. Welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with singer-songwriter John Novello. John Novello, award-winning jazz keyboardist, composer, best-selling author, speaker, and elite personal development trainee. John Novello's music takes you to a soulful world where jazz, R&B, and pop meet at the corner of taste and vibe. In his L.A. days, John played with Taste of Honey, which had a number one song, Boogie Oogie Oogie, that led to many other gigs with esteemed soul pop and jazz artists like Donna Summers, Manhattan Transfer, Ramsey Lewis, Edgar Winter, Richie Cole, to name but a few. In addition to John's musical accomplishments, John is an author and music educator, having written the bestseller industry keyboard method, The Contemporary Keyboardist. Now showing even more diversity, Novello has decided to enter the personal and spiritual development world with a self-help blend memoir book entitled The Invisible Architect, How to Design Your Perfect Life from Within. The Invisible Architect is a rare look into the inner world of acclaimed musician John Novello, by the author himself, and based on his discovery of an inner power we all possess but rarely knowledgeably use. Now, making it happen in Nashville, Tennessee, here he is. Hello, John. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. What about you? Doing great. It is a beautiful sunny day. The clouds are still there, but it is hot out there. It's getting to be summer, and I like it. Yeah. You're here in Franklin as well, right? I'm in Franklin all the way from Los Angeles and been here almost three years now. All right. All right. Well, <clears throat> when doing my homework on you for today, I saw um, at three years old on TV, you watched musicians. Did you have jazz musicians you looked to way back then or were just getting started? Or was it the Beatles for most people like born in the 60s? Well, when I was three years old, I my parents uh, always used to watch the Lawrence Welk show, which is the big band and his thing. And I wasn't necessarily at three years old you know, uh, what's the word, sentient enough to understand anything other than I saw a guy playing an accordion and the black and white keys interested me and I pointed to it kind of like, hey guys, I want to do that. And so a few years later, they thought I meant playing the accordion and growing up in an Italian Catholic family, I ended up playing the squeeze box for about three or four years as we used to call it, but that wasn't my calling and eventually I figured out that I wanted to play the piano and the organ and uh and then of course as I got into my teens I started seeing groups like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and all these incredible artists and that got me excited about getting into a band and when did you have your first band how old I was probably 16 and I was just playing cover music you know R&B funk and rock and uh heavy metal and things like that and uh everything was you know, doing arrangements of famous songs and going out on the weekend and playing. And then, of course, uh, that got me excited. And we got discovered. I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania by a famous producer, and he signed us to a record deal. So my first taste of fame happened very easily and effortlessly. But then uh, the singer um, 
joined the army in those days and uh, the record company dropped us like a hot potato. So we never finished the album. And I think that was the Lord kind of saying, well, this is, this is your career, but you're not quite ready. So you need to go practice more. And so that led me into studying and moving out of Pennsylvania, going to school, Berkeley College of Music, and eventually moved out to California. And I'm glad I did because I got much more trained. Had I probably been successful at 17 or 18, God knows where I would be right now. <laughs> now, if I'm not mistaken, you were in the L.A. music scene at the time of uh the garage bands like Van Halen that went on to superstardom and maybe in the Bay Area where the Green Days were, what drew you to jazz? Well, as I was playing these cover songs, uh, my mentor at the time in Erie, Pennsylvania, who was teaching piano, uh, a friend of mine played me a Chick Corea record, an Edgar Winter record, and uh, a couple jazz artists. And since I didn't know what jazz was, I went, what is that? because I was playing funk and R&B and rock and all that stuff. And he said jazz, so that got me extremely interested. So he started teaching me some jazz harmony, and I was struggling with improvisation. I did the research, and uh, even though I had a degree already, I, I graduated college with a, uh, an equivalent to a master's in mathematics. I didn't do my final thesis. But on the side, I was always in a band, and I went, you know what, I think... Uh, I think it's time for me to make a move. And so I moved to Boston after doing research and studied jazz there. And uh, and then after I felt like I had enough training under my belt, I decided to move out to Los Angeles to quote unquote, make it big. Okay. All right. Well, uh, mathematical mind and music definitely do go together. Um, jazz is a music genre that originated in the African-American communities of New Orleans, Louisiana in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, with its roots in blues and ragtime. Since the 20s, jazz age has been recognized as a major form of musical expression in traditional and popular music. Definitely a American original. Um, your path avoided the South. I didn't hear you mention New Orleans. How did you, how did you get so steeped into it without actually being there on the ground where it originated? Well, there's all types of jazz. The first jazz that I heard was more contemporary uh, and it sort of bypassed the, you know, the regular blues and the regular New Orleans kind of style. But I did discover the blues shortly after getting into bebop and jazz and studying Oscar Peterson and Charlie Parker and things like that. Then I got into the blues because I was playing the Hammond B3, the Hammond organ, and Jimmy Smith, of course, was the premier Hammond B3 blues player. So I started getting into playing 12-bar blues, and I really started digging on that. Uh, and so between the blues and studying contemporary uh, composers and performers such as Oscar Peterson, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, Joe Dolanol, and then eventually into... Uh, Keith Emerson and ELP, as far as the kind of uh, progressive rock, that sort of gave me an eclectic background. So I started composing in those various styles. So I was backwards instead of growing up in jazz, like say Chick Corea, uh, I grew up playing pop and funk and rock and then blues and then contemporary jazz. And uh, which is what I bring to the table now with my original music because I've got such an eclectic background 
uh, as versus just being a purist jazz or a purist rock guy or whatever. That's great. Um, <clears throat> so being in Nashville now, you know, the place is synonymous with country and bluegrass from Dolly, the backwoods Barbie to Johnny Cash, the man in black, and of course, Memphis's favorite hillbilly Elvis. Do you find it an accommodating place for your style of music here? Well, probably 10 or 15 years ago, uh, the answer would have been no. And I always thought of Nashville as not a place, even though I played venues here, uh, not a place for me. But uh, the whole California, Los Angeles scene right before COVID and then during COVID was literally falling apart in every aspect you could think of. And my partner, Billy Sheehan, in my one band called Niacin, uh, he moved to Nashville five years ago, and I've been here almost three. So he kept saying, John, you won't believe Nashville is really the place. Don't think of it as a country place only. And uh, so in 2020, at the height of COVID, I ended up, uh, my wife and I moved here. And uh, I've now been, I've got a, a sort of a contemporary jazz band here in Nashville and I've got it together. We've been playing at Rudy's Jazz Room and having a good time and getting ready to do a, a CD. And even though this is the home of country and all that stuff, there's a lot of incredible, not only studio musicians, but jazz guys who have moved here. And so to me, the scene here is way better than it was in uh, LA, uh, you know. Uh, so to answer your question, it's now, you know, it's very productive and constructive for me to be here more so than LA. I, think I it's never great. thought I'd it, say that either. <laughs> no, no, I think that's why they call it Hollywood East and it's uh, it's sticking. Um, yeah. do, so you've been at Rudy's for a while. I think that, that your run is actually, if I'm not mistaken, kind of stopped for now on that particular venue. But while you were doing that, tell me if I'm wrong, if, you, if you're going to be playing again soon, I'd love to come see you. But while you were there, young people, do, do you think they have an interest in jazz, in your type of jazz, in contemporary jazz, or did you see mostly an older crowd? No, what's amazing is, is uh, uh, in fact, I was getting in trouble because people were coming that were 17 and 18, and the owner does not like to let people in unless they're over 21, even though it's legal in Tennessee to come here if you have a, you know, a parent or stuff. But no, I would have uh, younger people come in. So uh, people from 17 or 18 to 80, the exciting thing for me was every soul was pretty much sold out. Every show was every much, pretty much sold out. And the compliments that I got were, you know, I never really liked jazz, but I don't know, whatever you do, I really like it. And that's goes back to that earlier thread because my stuff is very funky, contemporary, very groove and blues oriented. And even though we've got great players that can really blow their buns off, uh, the structure and the groove and the energy communicate to just about anybody, which is very exciting. It is. Um, and I saw names you've worked with, uh, like Andy Summers of The Police, Henry Mancini, Ramsey Lewis, uh, to legendary rock bassist Billy Sheehan, you said, is your partner. Um, Jan's, jazz is a compilation medium. You can't just do it one person, I don't think. Who who were some of your favorite partners to perform with over these years? Uh so you mean people that I performed with, not necessarily mentors, more Yeah. People. Yeah, well, uh, I even though he's a, a fellow keyboardist and a mentor, uh, Chick Corea, uh, I played on one or two of his records, and he did some educational stuff with my educational book. So we played a lot together. That was pretty amazing. And uh, Melvin Davis on bass and 
I play with Lee Rittenauer and Larry Carlton and all those guys and Richie Cole when he was alive on sax and Eric Marienthal on sax and uh, uh, drummers, you know, Dennis Chambers is probably one of the most premier drummers on planet earth and played with him and Steve Smith from Journey. And uh, yeah. so I've had the pleasure of playing with a lot of great players, not only in my band, but in various musical projects. Edgar Winter is a monster. Stevie Winder, excuse me, Stevie Wonder played with him and we've done some stuff together. So uh been very blessed in that area. Very nice. Um, and so you mentioned it, but the name of your band is Niacin. Um, <clears throat> it's toured the world, recorded six CDs, uh, and their latest release, at least I think, was Time Crunch on Magna Carta Records, um, heralded as one of the legendary progressive fusion records of all time. Nyson's release, Organic, had been picked by Jazz's magazine as instrumental fusion record of the year back in 2006. Um, tell us about Nyson, and is there anything going on with that band anymore? Well, you know, your information is a, a, not quite up to date. We've got nine CDs out. The last one was called Crush, okay. with a K, K-R-U-S-H. And uh, a lot of people don't sometimes get it when they say the name, but Niacin is sort of an inside joke because niacin is a vitamin, right? Vitamin B3. And uh, the, the music of the band Niacin is a progressive uh, rock trio based on the music of the Hammond B3, which is a famous <laughs> B3. And so it's an inside joke when we were putting the band together. What are we going to call this? And initially, I said, well, let's just call it B3 since the music and then Billy says, wait a minute, vitamin B3, let's be a healthy band and have an inside <laughs> joke. So we called it Niacin. So that's kind of a funny play on words. But uh, yeah, it. Billy and I knew each other in L.A. And one day he called me and says, hey, I've never been in a progressive rock fusion power B3 trio. All the trios are always monster guitar trios with Steve Vai and all these guys. He says, let's just let's use this as a chance. And so Bass Player Magazine gave him a budget. He called me up. We wrote a tune. We called it Niacin. And uh, everybody got excited about this new concept of, because most Hammond organ trios, Joey DeFrancesco and Groove Holmes and Larry Young and uh, Jimmy Smith, they were all jazz blues, where this was more like Keith Emerson on steroids, you know, progressive. And Billy Sheehan's a monster rock player, so he grounded it in the rock world. And I did do a lot of the writing and composing. So it was a unique combination. And we wanted to have a monster drummer that was eclectic, that could do anything. And we both had heard Dennis Chambers, who's probably one of the best drummers in the world, who can play anything. And so that chemistry, that synergy, kind of like the Beatles, uh, you know, the Beatles got together. And as a group, they were greater than the sum uh, of uh, of their parts, and even though all three of us individually are good players, for some reason, some kind of magic happens when we get together. So Chikoria heard the record, signed us to his label, and the band just took off. Yeah, and like I said earlier, it is a compilation, uh, collective art form jazz where one player plays off the other, off the other, off the other. So that would make a lot of sense. But you do have your first solo CD, Tool Cool was released to excellent reviews through ITI Spindle Top in the U.S. and through, um, let's see, it looks like Sentimo Records in Europe. How, right. how does Europe like jazz compared to America today? Oh, it's it, it's kind of a 
bummer that even though America is the genesis of jazz, that most of us guys have to play in Asia and Europe to really make a living. It's much more respected and admired. And in the States, um, you know, it's a small niche uh, and it competes, of course, with country and rap and all the kinds of other stuff that are out there. So uh, it's hard to tour in the States. Yes, there are jazz clubs, but we don't get paid as much as when we go over to Asia and Japan and play. Uh, so uh, they like when we go over to Japan, it's always sold out. They pay us ridiculous amounts of money. And when we play in the States, like I said, it, 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 it's a struggle. It really still is, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so you do have a worldwide reputation in contemporary jazz and R&B soul on uh, both acoustic and electric instruments, but most famously the Hammond B3 organ, as you said, Hammond B3 high energy on full display is how you've been accredited. Tell us about the B3 organ, how you first discovered it, how you felt comfortable behind it. What made you decide that was your instrument of choice well, and its during unique the 60s, sound? Yeah, the 60s to me in the seven, early 70s was some of the probably the greatest bands and the greatest music around. And I started off on the accordion and then my sister got a piano and I said, wait a minute, what is this? Accordion is played like this and the piano is played like this. And so I went to my teacher and I said, what do I do with my left hand? And so he started showing me some things. And then uh, the bands at those times, if you think about it, you got Steppenwolf had a B3, the Young Rascals had a B3, the Vanilla Fudge had a B3, Hendrix. Oh, they all had Hammond organs was like a staple of the 60s and the 70s. And I always went, what is this sound? And so one day I went down to this place that had a Hammond B3. I started playing it. I fell in love with it, begged, borrowed, and stole my parents to get me one. And I got one. And then uh, I started a, a trio in Erie, Pennsylvania called C.J. Bry, which is a made-up name, just like Jethro Tull. There was no C.J. Bry. And I started writing for that kind of trio. And that band was the forerunner who would have thought that 20, see, I got to L.A. when I was 30 years old and didn't, uh, didn't start Nison for about another 10 or 15 years. So you know, who would have thought that C.J. Bry was sort of the genus of niacin, only with more famous people in it. And so that's, I just fell in love with that organ. It was more expressive to me than the piano. You got these draw bars and all these different sounds you can make, and it could really scream. And although I love piano, and uh, I'm still noted as a pianist, and I have a lot of feeling that I can put into the piano, when I jump on the organ, it's just, I don't know, me and the organ become one for some reason. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing to see. Uh, I can always think of the British uh, pop band uh, Duran Duran and how they didn't like carrying their instruments around. So none of them really knew how to play any instruments. It was much more like a boy band before there was such thing as boy band. So to lug that around from gig to gig must not have been an easy thing. Well, when I was nobody, that's true because it was really hard to do when it was time to break down at the end of the night, everybody in the band would run for me because they knew I was going to come to get help. <laughs> but then once I got a little bit more accomplished and moved out to Los Angeles, then of course we had roadies and, and people to do that. And then, uh, and we would take a lot of gear, but then once 9-11 uh, happened and all that stuff, the airlines quit doing that. So now you got to backline all your equipment, which means rent the gear from backline clubs. So when I go overseas, 
I just have to make sure I'm in contact with the right back line. And, and that's a drag because it's not your main yeah. instrument and you, you know, yeah. sort of like aren't happy necessarily with that. And then of course, technology started to take over and you now got synthesizers to play goofy samples of roads and pianos and organs. And I'm a real organic, not to be a, not to throw a pun there. I like the real deal. I don't like the samples. And so I still need the real deal. You know? Yeah. When you uh, enjoy music for fun and not playing, do you stick to contemporary jazz and R&B soul or do you like other music too? No, I like pretty much all music. Um, to me, there's good music and bad music. And, you know, I'm not a uh, bluegrass fan, but the other day I went and saw some bluegrass over at some famous club in Nashville. What was it called? The Station? Oh, I love the station, and we've interviewed yeah, uh, Joshua the here. There. Yeah, yeah, but I saw some really great, talented bluegrass artists, and so I can appreciate that. But it's not my cup of tea necessarily to listen to. So I listen to straight ahead jazz, contemporary jazz, blues, uh, and I still love listening to the old '60s and '70s bands. And I also still love classical. I probably play about an hour of. Bach and Beethoven every day to keep my chops up and listen to a lot of classical and stuff. So I got a pretty eclectic background and a few incredible artists that inspire me, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do you take any uh, inspiration for any work that you're currently on or into the future that you'd say, well, if I can infuse this genre into what I'm doing, I could have something unique or, or do you just hear it in your head and bring it out on the keys? Well, a combination of both, like my, favorite current pianist of all times and I've like I've said I've been inspired by Herbie Hancock and Oscar Peters and Chip Curry and all these guys they're the legendary guys of course but uh there's a guy in Cuba named Gonzalo Rubalcaba R-U-B-A-L-C-A-B-A Gonzalo appropriate name because he's like a monster and he's probably the modern day Franz Liszt of the jazz Pianist. And so uh, he inspires me. And uh, but when I go to write, I purposely don't listen to anybody. I channel it and it just comes from above. Uh, but you have to be open. And that sort of sort of is congruent to my book, The Invisible Architect. The reason why I called that book The Invisible Architect is that's my contemporary name for God, the universal consciousness, the you know, the infinite creator. I didn't want my book to have any religious connotations because it's about my hookup with the Lord and how I use that inner power to become successful. So it's like you said, it's an autobiography, but at the same time, it's got fundamental success mindset exercises in it that can help anybody. It uh, doesn't matter what the religious persuasion is. And so uh, at three years old, I had this inner voice, and I've always followed it. And uh, and so when I write, uh, it's it, it's amazing. I don't feel like I'm writing. What's that sort of? Uh, it's a paraphrase of the biblical quote. It's not I who doeth the works, but the Father. So when I sit down, whatever I've been listening to between CDs is in my mind, wherever, right? So then when I sit down, I just sit down being an improvisationalist. I just sit down and start blowing and improvise sometimes i'll put the recorder on and once i find something magical because not everything i play is obviously magical but i'll sound go whoa what was that then i take that as my genus as my seed and since i have a craft and i can compose 
I'll use that magic to then channel more stuff and compose and create. Uh, so my stuff is a fusion. It's an eclecticness. And every time I go to do a new record, I don't know really where it's going to go. And I just trust and have faith in the process. Wow. All right. Um, I do want to talk about your book, um, The Invisible Architect, How to Design Your Perfect Life from Within, May 15, 2021. You'll learn that there is indeed a perfect, all-knowing power, an invisible architect, or to put it in more scientific terms, an invisible field of intelligent energy that permeates everything that exists, including you and me and all life, matter, energy, space, and time, and is available to us for information, advice, comfort, and assistance to design our perfect divine lives. How does that work inspire you before you even put it to music? It must have been in your life uh, one way or the other. And how has it evolved? Yeah, ever since I was nine years old, I hooked up to this inner voice. I didn't know what it was. So at that point in my life, uh, excuse me, Bless you. I just thought it was like an inner voice that speaks to people and I thought everybody had that voice which I find out later we all do but most people are so distracted with making a living and uh in life and survival in general that they're not attuned to that frequency but for some reason I became attuned to it when I was young and I quickly learned that this voice had some pretty amazing advice and when I listened to it things worked out and when I didn't they didn't work out. And it could be as simple as me about to go on a freeway and the little voice says, no, nah, you don't want to get on the freeway. There's a traffic jam. And I would ignore it, go up the ramp and, oh my God, there's a traffic jam. As simple as little things like that in my life started to, I started to become aware of. And the ultimate one, I just, uh, uh, when I was uh, living in LA, my first girlfriend from Erie, Pennsylvania emailed me one day to make a long story short she says hey john remember me barb simpson and i said yeah whatever happened to you because we were 15 and of course i'm a lot older you know 55 or 56 and i said whatever happened to you and she said what it did and then she goes you know i'm an interior designer i'm going to come out to california so we started talking on the phone and i had just lost my first wife to cancer a year earlier so it was like a breath of fresh air that i hooked up with my first girlfriend which is not an accident and you'll see why. So then she goes, well, I'm coming out. So she booked a time and uh, she said, I'll be out in three weeks. So she gave me the date and everything. And my voice by then, I had really developed this interaction with the invisible architect, which I didn't name at the time. To me, I knew it was universal consciousness and just, you know, whatever. The voice said, tell her not to fly that day. And I kind of like, what are you talking about? And it's kind of like I trusted this voice implicitly by this time. I, I knew it was real. So I called her up. I said, look, we haven't talked in 36 years. You don't know me. You're probably thinking that this is some kind of woo-woo nonsense. It's not. Please book another time. Don't ask me why. And she told her sister and some of her girlfriends. And they said, oh, my God, he's a widower. And he probably has other girls. He's a jazz musician. I finally had a yell at her. I said, no book another time. So she reluctantly booked the time three days later. And on the morning of her flight, she calls me freaked out because that was 9-11 and she was on the flight uh, oh. from Washington, D.C. Oh, my goodness. Right. I didn't even say, oh, my goodness, because <laughs> I had been used to this by that by this time in my life. But 
she flipped out, her mom flipped out, her sister flipped out. I went from being this guy that she probably shouldn't get involved with to like a, a celebrity almost overnight. And of course, that was a signal from the invisible architect for me that this was probably going to be a good relationship. So a couple of years later, we got married. And uh, that's in my book, The Invisible Architect, is one of the most incredible stories. But since it's a bit of an autobiography, I put 20 examples how I've used that voice to help create a better life for me and my family and others, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, uh, that was pretty amazing. And I still, to this day, use that voice for networking, for advice and counsel, and even to help out. I, I even have some people call me up that know the story and go, hey, I'm about to fly tomorrow. What about the flight? And I say, <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. I'm not a psychic. I don't, I don't, I can't win the lotto for you or give you that advice. It just, it's information that gets downloaded to me and then I act on it. Sorry. <laughs> when I was when I was doing the homework, I heard that invisible architect, and it reminded me of. Uh, have you heard of the Greek word paraclete? Yeah, I have heard of that. Doesn't have an English, uh, not a good English translation, but you could say advocate, lawyer, helper. Right. But the right. Bible calls it the Holy Ghost. Right. Exactly. Well, that's what a couple friends of mine say. Uh, you know, they'll say, uh, John, you should have just called it the Holy Ghost. How to how to design and achieve uh, your your uh, perfect life from within, and I have to explain to them. I said, "Look, there is a Bible. This is not a Bible. This is an autobiography of John Novello, and my su successful actions. And if I called it the Holy Ghost or some other religious names, it would then be categorized and prevent certain people from probably even do it." My book now gets bought by atheists and Hindu and, and Christians and Catholics and, and pastors and Bible literalists, everything. And I get all kinds of great uh, compliments about the mindset, spiritual exercises in the book. Because all I'm really doing is paying it forward and sharing my personal involvement with the Lord. And so... I decided to call it the Invisible Architect, and and that's got a quick story. I, I was writing the book and didn't have a title. I knew what it was about. Then, uh, you know how when you go on the internet and on the right hand side there's these pay sites that come up because they follow your background. I I was trying to think of a name to call my book, and I went through all these names, and they had different philosophical connotations and religious, and I said no, no, no. And then all of a sudden, on the right hand side. Uh, it said Invisible Architect, and I thought, what is this? And I clicked on it, and it was a designer. It was somebody who was a real architect who created types of architectural design that was invisible and very contemporary. So as I was reading the site, my inner voice went off like crazy, kind of like, yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm glad you got it, Dodo, right? And then I thought about it, and I went, Wow, architect is a designer, invisible architect, God is invisible, and the designer and architect of all things. That's perfect. So uh, that's how that name came about. Awesome. Um, all right. So here's what Sherry Jessup said in her five-star review on Amazon. I highly recommend this book for anyone seeking direction for their future, whether personal fulfillment or their career objectives. I wish I had been, I wish it had been available about 50 years ago. 
I might have been even more successful with each chapter. I found valuable information and insight that could really assist one in seeking and finding their true objectives. Thank you, John Novello, for an inform informative and helpful book. I will enjoy giving this book to many younger people. Do younger people have interest in this book? Yeah. As a matter of fact, this book has spawned. And believe me, if uh, if I if I ever had believed in psych and went and had a reading and the guy was looking in the crystal ball and he would say, yeah, jazz musician, blah. And I'd say, yeah, that sounds like me. Oh, you're going to be an elite mentor and you're going to help people create better life. I go, no, 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 that's not me. I'm a jazz. What are you talking about? Right. But uh, the book became a, an instant bestseller. And uh, that spawned the concept of me working one-on-one -on -one with people. So now I just launched a one-on-one -on -one mentoring service. Uh, I don't want to say like Tony Robbins because it's not like a life coach. It's more elite one-on-one. -on -one, so I can work one-on-one. -on -one, so I don't believe in group stuff. I, I can meet with anybody and they'll tell me every undesirable situation in their life or unachieved goals or situations. And then I meet with them one-on-one. -on -one, and I work them through my book and I work them through all the different exercises, mindset drills in the book. Because I have found that, especially nowadays, most people can't read a book, duplicate, understand, and apply. Uh, you wouldn't believe how many kudos I get from the book, but people just, they don't do it on their own. They're, they're disciplined and no accountability and probably the distraction of survival does that so when i get one-on-one -on, -one on somebody i go through the book and i can get them and have a lot of success stories that way so now on the side besides my music career i have this one-on-one -on -one mentoring thing i only take about eh, three or more four three or four people in a month because obviously one-on-one -on -one i can't do too many and then i get them on their way using the fundamentals in the book and have raging success stories and I do that on the side. What's cool is I can do that from any place in the world because most people do a Zoom call with me. Or some people that have a lot of money will just fly in and I'll work with them intensively. Nice. Um, any success stories or case studies on that? That uh... Yeah, if you go to uh, uh, my th this website, it's go.johnnovelloauthor.com slash video. And all the success stories and case studies, some of them are famous people and some of them aren't, are there for people to look at. Plus, there's a uh, a mentor educational video that explains uh, the details of what I do. So it's go.johnnovelloauthor.com slash video for all the test cases and success stories. Is that mostly uh, successful people in entertainment or anybody that... that no, some people that are just regular people. One guy just has a litigation company. Uh, <laughs> one person that I know is just a singer-songwriter. She's not like necessarily successful. And, but then there's a couple people on there. One of them is a multi-platinum songwriter who's incredibly successful. But you got to be careful about success because I work with people that are incredibly wealthy. You might say, well, why are they hiring you? Because wealth people have undesirable situations in their life. As one particular person has problems with relationships because he has so much money. So I work with them in that area. And some people have procrastination problems. Some people, yes, have money problems. Some people have businesses that they want to get off the ground. 
a uh, couple musicians or trying to, you know, uh, establish a better career. What's interesting with this concept is whatever a person's unachieved goals or desires are or undesirable situations, the reason why the secondary title of my book uh, is called How to Design Your Perfect Life from Within. When I first started to do that, I got a lot of feedback from publishers. Oh, you shouldn't say perfect life. That's going to sound like a scam. And religious people are thinking you're going to be God. And I went, no, sorry, but God is the one who told me about this secondary title. And if you even look at it, the kingdom of God is within. If you want to get religious here for a moment, and God is all-knowing and all-perfect, why wouldn't you want to go towards a more perfect life, not just a life coach that goes, hey, what do you you got a problem with this and this. I can be a life coach. And well, there's tons of mediocrity out there. Like we've lost quality control on this planet, as far as I'm concerned. And if we don't go for perfection, we'll never get there. So then I changed it to uh, the invisible architect, how to design your perfect life from within and it became a hit. Now I'm sure there's probably some religious fanatic out there that thinks I'm playing God. I don't care. I'm not. Uh, that that's their problem if that prevents them from reading the book. Uh, but when they start working with me, they see, oh, he's just trying to take my situations in life and make them more perfect. And so that was the invisible architect's suggestion. And who am I to argue with somebody all perfect? <laughs> Yeah. So your other book, The Song That Never Ended, the story of how you and your wife, Gloria Rausch, is that how it's pronounced? Met. Gloria, and, yeah. How we met. Yeah. And created music together and fought cancer. Uh, tell us about how you met Gloria and dealing with cancer. Well, I moved out to California in 1978 and I uh, was talking to a guitar player, a brand new guy. And I said, what are you doing tonight? Want to get together? And he goes, well, I'm meeting with a singer. And uh, I always, like I said, follow my voice. And the voice said, why don't you inquire about this person? Normally, I would never not do that. I would have just said yes. But I said, oh, so is this singer any good? Oh, she's amazing. And I said, is she cute? Don't ask me why. Yeah, she's amazing. And I said, do you have a picture? And he said, yeah. What are the odds that you even have a picture on him, right? And I said, I want to meet her. And at that point, I was becoming famous. I was the musical director for The Taste of Honey. We had a a number one record out that went platinum. And of course, I used that positioning and altitude. And I said, why don't you bring her down to the rehearsal? And he brought her down and we hit it off. Started writing together and I ended up marrying her. 20 years later, she ended up getting cancer. I took off, fought cancer all over the world for two years. And she uh, made her transition and passed. And uh, I didn't even know there was a world out there called ADC, After Death Communications. We were such soulmates that I was receiving through the dream network, uh, these amazing communications uh, from her. And uh, so I started doing research and that led to me to write a book called The Song That Never Ended, which was my way of paying it forward to try to tell people, hey, we are eternal spirits. Your loved one is still alive and well in spiritual form check out my experiences in this book in the area. So then I started doing these, uh, being on radio uh, shows and uh, explaining my after-death communications. Again, a book that I never, ever thought I would write. So I called it the song that never ended because musically 
I'm a jazz guy, I'm a musician. And to me, that was a, a communicative title because, hey, when you lose your loved one, you really haven't lost them. Wow. And so for over a year, Gloria battles the disease with every spiritual weapon at her disposal, never far from her side. Her husband, John, seeks out a wide range of alternative and conventional treatments that take the couple as far afield as Mexico and Germany. Um, what, what was the experience like trying to find her, sounds like in a very short window of time, maybe desperation even, uh, alternative medicines in Mexico and Germany? Another yeah, that too. was a real challenge. You know, I always believe that life is for lessons. And uh, if you ever heard of Dr. Charles Stanley, who was one of the most amazing uh, pastors and his YouTube fame and his, uh, his seminars and things like that are amazing. And he has one called Why God Sends Us Difficulties and how difficulties are supposed to be to steal you up for something that you're not quite ready. In other words, spiritual growth, right? And so uh, by me, ended up being a caregiver and helping her fight this disease for about a year and a half. When she passed, uh, the spiritual growth that accompanied that endeavor made me a way better John Novello. And then uh, a year later, the Lord sent me my first girlfriend that I've already told you the story about Barb. And you may or may not know, Barb just passed two years ago. So I've had uh, mm. two uh, soulmates that have passed. And for the last two years, again, more spiritual growth. And I'm even a better John Novello. And uh, I'm a firm believer that the Lord, you know, giveth and the Lord taketh. And he's sovereign and he does that for a reason. And you just have to pay attention to that reason so you can grow spiritually as compared to being a victim and rolling up in a little ball and wearing black and not learning anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, the book says post-death interdimensional communications with Gloria. Right. John details his astonishing contact sessions with five celebrated mediums encounters that convinced the musician author that Gloria was still beside him. Uh, is she still beside you? Yeah, I still get communications. And, you know, whether you think of heaven or the afterlife or the hereafter as beside you or up there or just in another dimension, I've got total confirmation that this exists. Now, I know some there are some certain biblical people that say you be careful you're communicating with demons or Satan. I know that not to be true from my experience, because when I met with these celebrated scientifically tested mediums, I did it with double blind experiments. They didn't know who I was. I called from a blocked number. There was no way anybody could have information that was downloaded to me through the contact session. And I just shared that information and I let people judge their, make their own evaluations about if it's Satan or if it's truly my wife and I don't care, but I've got rave reports from people that the book was very comforting because the whole idea was to uh, comfort people to realize that uh, their loved ones probably still exist in spirit form and whatever. And that's what makes me feel good. Uh, if it was somebody like a demon or somebody Satanistic, uh, I don't think the goal of that negative being would be to help comfort people. That's my only yeah, comeback. Not, not to make you happy for sure. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you told me, I think, uh, recently that you have just started dedicating your music itself to God. That's a new thing for you, isn't it? Absolutely. Like originally when I started out with the God's gift to me, my talent, and I started to develop that talent and polish it, uh, I was blessed with a good discipline and I was practicing and then I'd go out and play and I didn't know any better. I just was playing for myself, for my own ego. And that worked to a degree, you know, people would clap and I got better and better. And then I met this multi-platinum um, singer, songwriter, producer, because uh, he came to me to study and he gave me some tips. And one day he said, you know, you're such an amazing talent. He goes, but sometimes I get you're just self-indulging. And I said, well, what other way is there to do it? I just <laughs> play for myself and hope that people like what I do. He goes, yeah. You might want to think about playing for them. That was a whole new concept. I went, duh. So my intention changed from playing for myself and hoping people like it to literally have the intention to play for people and make them feel good. And when I got to that point, my composing and writing instantly, without sacrificing my expertise, uh, became more duplicatable, and I hate to use this word because I'm not a fan of it, but a little bit more commercial, right? Still playing my own stuff. Uh, when my wife passed away, it'll be two years, September 8th, and we only had moved from L.A., and, and she was only here 13 months when that happened, and it was devastating. But uh, I was at a men's prayer group, and I had never been to a men's prayer group in here, in, in Franklin. And uh, I had only been going through the loss about seven months. And my voice said, you need to get back in the saddle. Because I came here predominantly to quasi-retire, just work a few projects. And so I booked, a, uh, I got some uh, referrals from some great musicians. And I booked uh, a gig at Rudy's. Somebody told me it was a cool little intimate jazz club. And I was very nervous about playing because this would be the first gig that I played in 20 years that my wife, who had just passed, was not going to be in the front row. And I was a little emotional. And uh, this particular prayer group, which is pretty incredible, they, you know, you get to say, who's new? Okay, do you need anything for the men's group to pray for? And I reluctantly said no that first time. I was a new guy. And I went back and I went back the next week. And they did the same thing. Anybody uh, have any situation? And all kinds of people raised their hand from people that had loved ones that lost in cancer and financial situations. And I'd never seen this in reality. 75 men get around a person sitting in a chair and laying their hands and praying. I had never experienced anything like that. So... I was about ready to raise my hand, and then I, I, I decided, nah, I became a coward again. But then it was the weirdest thing. It was just like, do you want to call it the Holy Ghost or the Invisible Architect? Like somebody grabbed me and raised my hand for me and, and pushed me out of my chair. And the guy, Jerry, says, uh, he knew my name. He said, John, yeah, tell us. And it was too late, you know? So I said, well, I lost my wife, blah, blah, blah. It's my second wife. I've been going through a lot of healing. And I got a gig coming up, blah, blah, blah. And so I ended up going into the middle, sat around, 75 people, you know, putting their hands and praying for me. And it was like lightning energy from above that went through me. And I remember 
getting in my car, driving home from uh, Leaper's Fork on that two-lane road, and there was nobody. It was completely dark. And I was sitting uh, driving, and I went, where am I? I'm not in L.A. I'm in this little Bible Belt town called Franklin. I just had 75 people pray for me. This is all new. There's no traffic. I'm in the woods. What the heck? How did I get here? And I got home, and all of a sudden, that whole voice thing said, yeah, next time you play, uh, how about playing and worshiping and making your music dedicated to me? Not in an ego point of view. It was a whole new thing. So I got to the gig that night, and the guy Jerry was there, and I've never done this. I said, hey, Jerry, why don't you come on up and bless the audience? And he came up, did a quick little prayer, highly unlikely for me to ever do. And then I dedicated the music to the Lord. And uh, the most amazing thing happens. And when I thought about it, I went from playing for myself, playing for others. And now, in a sense, even though I'm not writing, quote unquote, worship music, I'm writing contemporary jazz, it's becoming worship music. And one of the several wins that have happened i had a guy two gigs ago at rudy's come up to me at the end of the night he said hey i have to meet you my name is blah 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 i'm from long island and uh i had to come down to see who the jazz guy was that dedicates his music to the lord that was strange for me normally i get standing ovations i love your music and thank you here's somebody telling me something in a different way and I've had that happen now, and I just went, isn't it interesting how the architect works that I've lost two wives, I've had spiritual growth on both of them, and now I'm at the twilight years of my life, and I'm mentoring people on how to interact with the Lord to design a better life, and I'm dedicating my jazz to the Lord. Wow, you can't make these things up. So I can wow. And you do a poignant rendition of Prince's Purple Rain, which you cited as your late wife's favorite tune, yep. one I played for her almost every day. Yeah, yeah. You still do that? All right. Still do that, yeah. All right, last question. I think we're in overtime, but last question. Uh, what is spiritual mechanics? Well, in my book, I needed to come up as an author with a name for the following, because the whole summation of my book if I were to make a quick summary, and you already said it when you read something, is I show people, whether they're atheists or whether they're Catholics or Christians or whatever type of Christian they are or whatever, I show people, in my mind, how to correctly pray to the Lord and get your prayers answered. A lot of people just get into this, oh, please, I'll never do this again, and if you could help me pay my rent, I will be happy. It's like a begging kind of thing. And then some people's prayers get answered, some people don't. So in my book, I show the way that I interact with the invisible architect. And the way that worked for me, and then I devise all these spiritual drills, for a lack of a better world word, I could say religious drills, but I didn't want to be religious. Uh, on how to interact. So I call that spiritual mechanics, how to interact with the Father, with your inner power, what whatever your beliefs are, how to interact with that power and have that power help you to create a better life. Most people, uh, even that are religious, they'll go to church, they'll hear a 
uh, pastors say something, then they get back into their life and they sort of forget about it. I show people how to, on a daily basis, be hooked up with that inner power and have it because we're not designing our lives. This architectural spiritual energy is if you A, surrender to it, B, invite it into your life and trust it, have faith to help you design your life. And so to me, that is the missing element that's going on nowadays. And so I named that spiritual mechanics. It's a lot like David and Proverbs. Exactly. Um, John, thank you for your time. I so much appreciate you taking it with us. Uh, tell us, tell the listeners where they can go to find out where you're going to be playing next, what you're up to, any of your social media. They can find out more about you and maybe even uh, look you up as a mentor. Yeah, uh, keysnovello.com. That's K, like keyboard or car keys. Keys, K-E-Y-S, my last name, Novello. Keysnovello.com is my music site to keep up with all things musical. My author mentor site is johnnovelloauthor.com, and they can find all, about all my books, especially The Invisible Architect, and there's a tab there called Services, and they can find out about my mentoring. Uh, and if they do want to watch a one-on-one -on -one mentoring video, it's very similar. It's the one I gave early, go, earlier, go.johnnovelloauthor.com slash video they want to contact me about doing one-on-one -on -one mentoring awesome well thank you very much and good luck and definitely uh keep up the good work and god bless you yeah god bless you guys thank you for uh, the privilege of having me on your show appreciate it thank you Choosing the right mortgage for your home financing depends on so many factors. Working with a mortgage lender that offers a broad selection of mortgage programs is key. At OneTrust Home Loans, they have helped many homeowners reach their home financing goals because they listen to anticipate your home financing goals and dreams. They aren't salesy, so for those 55 and older, you can trust them to help people not just survive, but thrive with extra cash flow. At OneTrust, service is everything. To speak with a mortgage specialist about your home financing goals, call Matt Helton, Nolensville Branch Manager at 615-400-6764. Be sure to tell him Steve and Steve from MC View sent you. Calcon Mutual Mortgage, LLC, DBA, One Trust Home Loans is an equal housing lender, NMLS 46375. All products are not available in all states. All options are not available on all programs. All programs are subject to borrow and property qualifications. Rates, terms, and conditions are subject to change without notice. For more information on reverse mortgages, visit onetrusthomeloans.com slash reverse dash mortgage disclosures. I don't understand. Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what would you think of our guest, John Novello? Oh, I think I got a new friend. He and I are going to talk <laughs> after the show. Um, uh, I love music, and I love motivation. I love being learning how to draw closer to the Lord and listening to his voice. And I love hearing stories of tragedy and hope. And here's an interesting man who's got a lot of different things that have happened in his life 
and uh, he's applied them, he's learned it, and now he's in a really sounds like a very discipling mode of learning process, and I and I just find it uh, very inspiring. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to actually uh, getting to know him more on my own time, and so thanks, Steve, for finding these wonderful individuals for your show. Just but- part of the fabric of the Tennessee lifestyle. That's what we're trying to create here. Um, and to the news, how's that? Yep. Uh, despite Washington Dems claiming all is well, the new crime in Washington report shows 2022 saw murders rise 16.6%, the highest number of murders recorded since the Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs began collecting data in 1980. Oh. Crimes against persons, property, and society all increased in 2022. And violent crime showed an increase of 8.9%. Assaults against officers increased 20.7%. Vehicles theft rose 34%. Total murders in Washington last year, 394. Thank you, Jason Rance, uh, at Jason Rance on Twitter for posting that little sad news item. Never has the level of violent crime been this high in Washington. The Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs, WASPC, has been collecting criminal data for the state since 1980. In its 43rd report, the numbers are alarming. The latest report shows the number of people murdered in Washington has surged, yet the number of commissioned law enforcement continues to plummet. It's common knowledge at this point, since the time of the pandemic, Washington has been hemorrhaging law enforcement. Washington has the lowest number of police officers per capita in the country. In regards to crime, it's not just homicide that's up. Robberies and vehicle theft are up as well. Almost 400 people were murdered in the state last year alone, with the increase of 16.6% compared to 2021, compared to that all-time high of 394, said Steve Strachan, executive director of WASPC. That is 96% more murders than you had in 2019. We have never seen murder rates this high in Washington. This is not the same as every national trend. Strachan said, it is not, I've sent something, sometimes people like, well, there's nothing we can do. It's a national trend. It's like this everywhere. Well, the data is not reflecting that right now. Jay Inslee is the worst governor in America. Okay. And if the voters of Washington are stupid enough to elect his AG, Bob Ferguson, well, shame on them. Um, Victory for protecting children in Tennessee. Next story, Tennessee law protecting kids from trans procedures to take full effect after court victory. July 8th, 2023, a Tennessee law protecting children from life-altering transgender procedures can take full effect after an appeals court overruled a federal court's ruling that blocked the law prohibiting of giving kids cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. On Saturday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled against the preliminary injunction by U.S. District Judge Eli Richardson we got to look into that guy, that blocked portions of Tennessee's law that prevented transgender surgeries and hormones procedure on children. The appeals court's decision came after Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Scarmetti, been on the show, filed a motion for an emergency stay. Okay, so we're in summer now, July 12th to be exact. What happened from June 1 to July 6 that was notable? Besides Joe Biden taking another vacation to the beach, like 40% of his time in office has been on vacation. <laughs> no, no word yet on whose cocaine was found in the White House. Speculation says Hunter, which makes sense. is He's on video everywhere doing coke and crack. But I'm betting it's Ashley. We'll never know, probably. Anyway, from June 1st, 2023... 
to July 6, 2023, by my abacus, that's about one month and five days, we've snorted away, or actually we've blown through a full trillion dollars in new debt issuance since the debt ceiling deal. On June 1, it was a cool 31.467 trillion, and today it's 23.5 trillion. How you like that? Inflation, gas, eggs, milk, houses. Uh, I just bought a new car. Numbers are crazy. All right. Top 10 territories that own the most U.S. debt, by the way, only 6.8 trillion. Public, as in you and me, 25 trillion. Good luck to my great great grandkids, yet unborn, paying off those solar panels in the desert. The ones were riddled with hail and total worthless now. Yeah, that just happened in Nebraska. You can Google it. The solar panels at a 5.2 megawatt solar farm in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, were mostly destroyed by baseball-sized hail moving at 100 to 150 miles per hour at the end of June. The solar panels were supposed to be hailproof, but the size of the hailstones were especially large. High winds that accumulated that hailstorm may have driven the large hailstones into the Scotts Bluff panels, exceeding their hail resistance limits. The hailstorm was part of a giant supercell thunderhead that moved across eastern Wyoming and into Nebraska. The multi-million dollar solar farm consisted of over 14,000 solar panels that had been put into operation in 2019. According to the Institute for Energy Research, Mother Nature can be a bitch, huh? Two, two points, Steve. First Go. of all, I have been to Scotts Bluff. It's a beautiful area of that, of that state. And then the chimney rock comes along a little later. Um, beautiful, beautiful. I hate to see, I hate to um, know that they've destroyed that beautiful area with solar panels. And the second of all, if anybody knows anything about that area and even Denver and that area, is we're talking golf, si golf ball size hail comes down and literally will pelt the top of your car and it will look like somebody takes a ball peen hammer and smash it. That's steel. So can you imagine what that's that that would do? I can't. I I, I don't have to imagine that that. Don't have to imagine it. Fourteen thousand solar panels got little pings in them now, and that's totally useless. That's right. So yeah, you think they would have known, but I guess not. That uh, the Green New Deal is just a raw deal. Every every it's time you look deal. at it, it's a rotten deal. That green has turned rotten, brother. Yeah. Well, medical schools, medical institutions like hospitals. It's the richest country on earth. Bernie Sanders keeps telling us, right? Well, have you been to a doctor lately? Listen to what they talk about in clip number one. So Sam, I'd like to ask you a few more questions if that's okay. Okay. All right. Can you tell me, do you feel like a boy, like a girl, like both or neither? And there's no right answer. He keeps telling me that he's a girl and that he doesn't like boy stuff. So we let him go by the name of Sam, which I like because it could be for a boy or for a girl. I don't know, I, I think he just wants to be like his big sister. Dad, I told you, I'm a girl. I'm sorry, honey, this is hard to understand. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I would like to ask Sam. So what do you say, Sam? I'm a girl. How long have you known you're a girl? I don't know, but a long time. So when we're talking about you, would you like for us to say he or she? She. Okay, thanks. In this scenario, the registration form provided an opportunity for the parent to share his child's name, pronouns, and gender identity. This helped inform the provider in asking follow-up questions with Sam and his parent during the clinical visit. 
the provider was able to update the EHR after talking to Sam to make sure that the information about Sam's pronouns and gender identity was correct. I, I thought that was a a make-believe, make fun uh -huh. of. Is that I know. real? Yeah, I know. Yeah, you would have thought it was Saturday Night oh, Live or a period. That is a real degree that medical professionals are trained to question the gender identity of a child that was real best advice medic medicine can buy uh thank you chloe cole for providing that one at uh chu cole c-h-o-o-o-c-o-l-e on the twit machine um but no i know you're stunned but that's the real oh. deal that's what it's like to be a doctor these days what you have to deal with uh last I think, week i think the one doctor sound like maybe he was already a trans individual though wouldn't surprise me the best advice medicine can buy last week i played some continuing education videos maybe lost in translation a bit since they had graphs and you can't see them on a podcast but still funny because you can visualize it maybe um nobody wrote to me saying they didn't get it so let's try another one let's try clip number two the hot crazy matrix you have your crazy axis and your hot axis Hot is, as usual, measured from 0 to 10. Crazy is measured from 4 to 10 because, of course, there's no such thing as a woman who's not at least a 4 crazy. This is your hot crazy line. Very important that you keep in mind where the hot crazy line is. This is your no-go zone. You don't go here. Above a 5 and to about an 8 and below the crazy line, this is your fun zone. Above the crazy line, we have the danger zone. This is your redheads, your strippers, anyone named Tiffany, hairdressers. This is where your car gets keyed, your tires get slashed and you wind up in jail this zone here this is below the crazy line above an eight hot but still about a seven crazy this is your date zone you can stay in the date zone indefinitely these are women that you introduce to your friends and your family they're good looking and they're reasonably not crazy most of the time above an eight hot and between about a seven and a five crazy this is your wife zone when you meet this girl you should consider a long-term relationship. Below a five crazy and above an eight high, this is your unicorn zone. These things don't exist. If you find a unicorn, please capture it safely, keep it alive. We'd like to study it and maybe look at how to replicate that. So I was explaining this to a guy one time and he said, wait a minute, I met this girl and she's like smoking hot. She's like at least a nine and she's chill. She's like not even a three crazy. I said, you should be careful. That's a dude, you're talking to a tranny. This is the... God. The hot crazy matrix. You can look it up if you want to see the graphs themselves. Um, I love that crazy axis doesn't start at zero. It starts at four. Uh, probably the best video the internet has to offer, really. So uh, Google that. And no, is, no, duck, is, duck going. This is the one you, you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that? Uh, yeah, yep. So there you have it. Um, it's no wonder to me things are going off the rails in D.C. This headline says a lot. Joe Biden's White House payroll at historic highs, 524 employees at a taxpayer cost of $52 plus million. The Biden White House has spent $158.8 million on the largest White House payroll in American history based on headcount. The Biden administration released its annual report to Congress on the White House office personnel as of June 30th, 2023, open the books, shares the details of the outrageous cost. The top paid is Dimitri C. Daskalakis, $260,718, deputy coordinator for the monkeypox response. The second most highly paid is Anand H. Das, 
$216,414. Senior Deputy Associate Counsel, both were previously stationed at federal agencies, the Center for Disease Control and the Securities and Exchange Commission, respectively, and now serve the White House uh, uh, detail. During President Joe Biden's first three years, he spent $158.8 million on the largest White House payroll in American history based on headcount. White House staff of, of fiscal year 2023 collectively cost $52,775,234. No White House ever employed 500 staffers until Biden became president. <clears throat> the Biden White House employed 560 in fiscal year 2021 and 474 in fiscal year 2022. The headcount increased by 50 to 524 in 2023. Biden employs 108 more staffers than Trump, 416 fiscal year 2019, and 70 more than Obama, 454 fiscal year 2011. At the same point in their respective presidencies, there was 46% turnover in White House staff year over year. 220 employees from last year are no longer on payroll. Last year, the turnover rate was 39%. The turnover in Biden's third year is 10% higher than the 36% turnover in 2019, Trump's third year. Jill Biden's staff more than doubled from last year, 8 to 20 this year. Somebody has uh, to do all the thinking, Steve, because Joe is sure, certainly not doing it. Well, you know, I mentioned who the highest paid one is. Maybe this guy is doing some thinking. Biden's top paid staffer is Christ Desecrating Occultist Monkeypox Coordinator. The White House payroll has hit historic highs under President Joe Biden, and the most highly remunerated staff member is his monkeypox coordinator, Dmitry Deskalakis, who the National Pulse first revealed as a Satan and occult-obsessed gay man who recently donned bondage gear for a speech at a biomedical conference. Deskalakis, who is 50 this year, joined Biden's White House staff less than a year ago. In that brief time, he has earned himself a salary of $260,789, the highest in the White House apart from the president himself. Must be really good friends. That'll buy him a lot of Crisco. Delisca Laskis and his partner, Michael McNeil, launched a goth gym together in New York based in a former gay nightclub that in turn had taken over an old church in Manhattan, Monster Cycle. The duo often posts satanic imagery as well as Christ-desecrating content. Daskalakis recently appeared for the Federal Bureau investigation as part of their Out and Proud event. There you go. I'm so happy to have them on staff. Uh, all right. Almost done here. Rise of pill-popping tech execs. Ryan Heath, Axios. Top five findings include four in five tech execs are taking medications, controlled substances, and among that cohort, one in two use them every day or nearly every day. Three and four say that recent layoffs and the future risk of AI replacing the roles have negatively affected their health. One and two self-reported as qualifying as heavy drinkers, three to seven drinks per day. One and three use controlled substances such as amphetamines and sleeping pills specifically to cope with work stress and long hours. Yes, but some of Silicon Valley's wealthiest founders and inventors are increasingly open about their drug use from ketamine to magic mushrooms, Wall Street Journal reported this week. Psychedelics advocates say their choices aren't about stress, but about extending creativity and dissolving mind and body boundaries. Good Lord. For the creators of South Park? Okay, fine. For the developers of ChatGBT AI and stuff? No. No wonder they think eating bugs, blocking out the sun, impossible meat, and gender-affirming care are good ideas. They're hepped up on goofballs all the time. Can't trust a junkie. Stay tuned for my thoughts of the day. 
With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com. Hey folks, I'm John Rich and you're listening to Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. Tune in soon and tune in often. God bless you. Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes and hit the subscribe button and follow us. While you're there, go ahead and leave a comment. I'll read it on air. And thanks for doing it. The piano ain't got no wrong notes. Thelonious Monk. Monk is the second most recorded jazz composer after Duke Ellington. If you have to ask what jazz is, you'll never know. Louis Armstrong. There's something beautifully friendly and elevating about a bunch of guys playing music together. This wonderful little world that is unassailable. It's really teamwork. One guy supporting the other and it all for one purpose. And there's no flies in the ointment for a while and nobody conducting. It's all up to you. It's really jazz. That's the big secret. Rock and roll ain't nothing but jazz with a hard backbeat. Keith Richards in his book, Life. It's not the note you play that's the wrong note. It's the note you play afterwards that makes it right or wrong. Miles Davis. Jazz is the only unhampered, unhindered expression of complete freedom yet produced in this country. Duke Ellington, although a pivotal figure in the history of jazz, the most significant composer of the genre, Ellington himself embraced the phrase beyond category, considering it a liberating principle and referring to his music as part of the more generally categorical of American music. That's it for this episode. Really hoped you liked it. Thank you, John Novello, for keeping America's true original music genre alive and well. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. Producer Steve, let's go out with a little John Novello. Seems appropriate. Peace in our time.
Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.